Hello everyone and welcome to Dice Smooth Design episode 19, World Building Part 2. In this episode we're joined by Martin Vox who gave us an update on the successful Lords of War Kickstarter and talked about the world building he's done for that game. Then we're joined by Matt, the GM of our long-running Rollmaster campaign to talk about the inspiration behind the world he's created for us to play in. So enjoy the episode. <laughs> Hey folks, welcome back to Dicing with Design. Uh, we're joined now uh, by special guest star, Martin. Hello. Off of uh, uh, Black Box Games. Uh, welcome back and yes. congratulations. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for having me, first of all. It's really nice to be back again. And yeah, thank you to everybody who helped us successfully fund our Kickstarter. It worked. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> you sound a, a little on the worried side, let's say, with la last time we spoke to you, but it uh, stormed through in the end, and pretty, you must have been a bit more relaxed by the end. Um, slightly. I mean, <laughs> I basically, we hit 100% funded, I think, six days before the campaign closed, which was an incredible accomplishment. And we had, you know, a couple of boosts, particularly from Dragon Meat, a game show that we went back to where we'd originally launched in 2012. We went back to Dragon Meat 2013. And quite a lot of people there didn't even know we were running a Kickstarter, which means that me as the marketing guy had completely failed. Um, <laughs> but anyway, they came through and did a whole bunch of, uh, of, of pledging. And uh, that got us over the line um, on sort of the Monday before we closed on the following Saturday. And as soon as that happened, I just came down with the most appalling flu. Um, and was basically ill right up until New Year's, like like proper really? flu, like the, the kind of flu that actually killed people back in the day. <laughs> man flu, you mean? Yeah, no, no, that's the thing. Like, if it had been man flu, fine, I could have just like lay on the sofa, wrapped in a duvet, wouldn't have felt too bad about it. But as it was, I was really phenomenally unwell. So while everybody else was like trying to call me up to say congratulations, woo, champagne corks popping, I was just like, no, leave me alone, please. <laughs> so um, how's how's it going? You've you've got these uh, you you got your Kickstarter funded, and now the I guess the the work continues. Yeah, it does really, because you know we were in a situation where. The reason we, we went to Kickstarter in the first place is because we weren't planning to run a Kickstarter at all. We were hoping to just keep on self-funding ourselves using the original seed money that Nick and I had thrown into the company. But as it was, we basically ran out of stock of our first, well, of Orcs versus Dwarves, basically. Orcs versus Dwarves kind of sold out towards the end of Christmas. Um, and we knew that was coming up. So the Kickstarter was absolutely necessary to not only help us print more copies of the original games, but also to expand. Um, so, yeah, we, we've now got the challenge of kind of running the business as it was and is continuing to expand into new countries, which is fantastic. I mean, we're really, really, really excited. You know, we're, we're just literally about to ship off 300 copies of Orcs vs. Dwarves and 300 copies of Elves vs. Lizardmen to France, which... You know, that happened as a result of our appearance at Essen. So all of that's really exciting, but still takes quite a lot of time to organize it all and make sure that you're doing everything correct and that the shipping addresses and everything else, basically that everything's working out and that you're not screwing yourself on tax and, and weird things like that. So Nick is mostly handling that sort of stuff. 
Um, and then on the other side of it, I'm kind of wrangling Templars versus Undead, trying to get that ready um, and trying to get it all finished in terms of artworking uh, for the end of February so that we can then have it printed in March and delivered in the first week of April when we'll need to launch at Salute, which is a big game show at the like second weekend in April. So that's the big day when we're going to be launching Templars vs. Undead and the Weather and Terrain expansion pack. Plus we've got a bunch of tins and t-shirts and playmats and other knickknacks that we've got to figure out. And I did not factor quite so much logistics into how I'd be spending the first quarter of the year. <laughs> So uh, Kickstarter delivered on time, do we think? I think so, yeah. I mean, you kind of have to in the sense that if you don't, then people have, you know, they're by all rights to kind of pull their money out and get sulky with you and Kickstarter will demand that you give money back and we obviously don't want to end up in that situation. Plus, we want people to be happy. You know, we promised we'd be delivering in April. I believed when I put that timeline together that it was a fair timeline for us to deliver on. And so, yeah, it looks like we will. But that doesn't mean that we can relax at any point because, you know, obviously we are trying to design a game and an expansion pack. Not design, but we're trying to get art worked and printed a game and an expansion pack in three months. Whereas previously for Elves vs. Lizardmen and Orcs vs. Dwarves, we could miss a deadline here, didn't matter if you didn't reply to an email there, like this matters so, so much. Um, especially because we're like building our reputation as a company as well. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. we're just looking forward to getting hold of the uh, the Templars and the Undead. Can't wait oh, to give them, give them bash to see what they do. Yeah, definitely. Oh, You'll be pleased to know, Martin, that uh, I've at least had a game since we last talked to you. So I have now played it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, of course, last time we spoke, you haven't played it. And how did you get along in your first game of Lords of War? My first game, I uh, I think I lost. No, I think you beat me. Did I beat you? Yeah, I probably beat Grant. I've beaten most of the time. You're, you're <laughs> playing me, so <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, I thought it was really cool. I thought it was a great balance between being really simple, really quick to learn, and still having a wee bit of depth, um, even on that first game. And obviously, it's got even more kind of deep after that, getting to know the characters and everything. So yeah, really enjoying it. Oh, thanks very much. I think, yeah. you know, from our perspective, it was really fundamental that we designed something that people could pick up and learn in about five minutes, but that once you've played it two, three, four, five times, you're still getting more stuff yeah. from it. Yeah, yeah, I, find, I think, well, I can see how, yeah, getting to know the cards a bit better, so you know what kind of stuff's coming up and what the, the like the first time I was out, I, the first time I came out, I wasn't sure whether a four attack was good or not, but then really I suddenly realized that, you know, four and five is pretty good and you know what's coming up and the ranks even as well, like getting an idea of how good the card is just by the rank and all that. I just, yeah, the more I play it, the more you, yeah, the more seems to come out of it, I think. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we've, we've got probably the most hardcore. Uh, Lords of War players are really local to us. They were part of our kind of test bed, test bank of players. And they're now playing with the tournament system that I've tried to develop so that people can start playing competitive games of Lords of War in kind of a structured way. And hopefully we can get a kind of league thing going. Because I think the most successful games are successful because they build community. Um, and on the one side you have, obviously, uh, the lore and building a universe stuff, which I'm sure we're going to talk about uh, before too mm -hmm. long. But on the other side, you've got this very practical thing of 
what gets people together to play the game. Um, and no matter how many awesome games you have on the shelf, the likelihood is that you'll always go for the things that are most familiar. So you have to have this motivation for people to build up a familiarity uh, with a particular game in order for them to keep on playing it. Yeah. Do you feel that the... Sorry, could you want to go? I was going to say, good pub game. I had a good session with Matt. We got in about three or four games of Lords of War in, just in the pub in Aaron. We went to visit him. So that's, you know, there's not too many of the kind of games we talk about on here that you can just take down to the pub. I'd like a little yeah. room. Yeah, thank Get you. Out on the and, uh, yeah, yeah. That, uh, well, that makes me extremely happy. Um, a friend of mine from school uh, called Christian runs a bar in Bath. Um, and very embarrassingly, I've completely forgotten the name of this bar right now. But anyway, um, <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes for you to remember. Yeah, indeed. Um, he has it in his bar, but he also plays it in the pub, and has found that actually, in a way, it slides into that kind of chess and checkers category, if you see what I mean. Because you know, you don't need an enormous square footage to lay it out and play it, um, and you can rattle through a few games, which is pretty fun. Um, so yeah, no, I'm really, really happy to hear that, Joe. Thank you so, so much. Um, and I'm hoping that you'll really enjoy what the Templars and Undead have to offer, because yeah, some some freaky and strange things are coming your way. <laughs> <laughs> Could go back to the idea of a being building a community. Do you feel that the Kickstarter has built a, a community in, in itself and going that route rather than um, yourself? driving the self-funding or getting investors, do, do you feel that that's something we hear a lot? Do, is that, do you think that's boring you? Um, if I'm absolutely honest, I think our Kickstarter campaign was a bit weird uh, when it comes to that kind of building community and momentum and everything else. Um, we had, and this is something that I really didn't expect, an enormous number of people who joined our campaign, uh, like pledged, and then they were gone within 12 hours. Um, right. We had a, a huge number of people who just arrive, pledge, then disappear. And we couldn't <laughs> figure out why the hell that was happening. Um, and we didn't like balloon through communication between friends and everything else like that. In the end, we ended up raising you know, 24,500 pounds from only about 400 people. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's high, is the average. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we have high, high, high for a high for a you know ten to fifteen pound board game, uh, a card game. Yeah, exactly. Really, really high, and I, and that was one of the things that kind of caught me off guard. I, I thought there'd be more people who just go, yeah, all right, well, it's only you know thirteen pounds, fifteen pounds, whatever. Yeah, I'll have a go at that. Um, one thing I think damaged us in that regard is that a lot of people on Kickstarter are American, and we were listed in pound sterling, and I think that meant that people sort of initially went, oh, that's not so expensive, and then they did the exchange rate and went, actually, that is quite expensive, bearing in mind, you know, US dollars, and it looks, it comes in such a small box, and that's been something yeah. that we've kind of been battling against a little bit since we started, and it's like, the people <laughs> who played the game and, and know how much there is kind of in it, um, go, yeah, well, of course it's worth the price. But I think for some people who are expecting to see dozens of components in a big box and everything else, uh, for them it's quite difficult to get their heads around a little bit. Also on Kickstarter, while we were on there, um, the games that were being successful all around us were tons of miniatures games. Right. Um, yeah. 
and what seemed to work really well for them is, you know, at these various different pledge levels, if you add a little bit of money here or a little bit of money there, then you just got more stuff. Whereas we'd spent so long, like over three years, trimming Lords of War down and down and down and down <laughs> to make it as simple as it possibly could be, which is why yeah. you know, I wasn't expecting to be delivering play mats and card tins and all this other stuff. It wasn't <laughs> something that I figured people would want. Yeah, with people many. all want the stuff. <laughs> they really as soon as they get fanatical about something, you want all the bits, even if they're yeah. useless. No, I've got a friend who was who was watching the campaign the whole time through, and he pledged very early on, um, and he's been really passionate about the game since it started. And he said, if you ever run a Kickstarter campaign again, please create a pledge level called Bells and Whistles, where you literally give people the option to have Lords of War bells and Lords of War whistles. <laughs> 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 it was quite strange, the amount of demand for extras here, there, and everywhere. Now, I started off feeling quite frustrated by that. By the end of the campaign, I understood, really, it was just passion. People just wanted more stuff to demonstrate that they really cared about the product. So, mm-hmm. you know, to all those people, I hope we satisfied them. Um, I don't know, it's very difficult, though. It just wasn't something that I'd thought about before going in. Um, no, that's all really cool, Martin. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think, I have to admit, I was uh, sucked into getting the playmat, so that uh, oh, good. I that bit. And I'm glad oh, I did as well, because uh, I've ripped my playmat play a bit already. So. Have you? Yeah, <laughs> have, actually. And what I'm trying to do is, is figure out ways to make the playmats a bit more fun. Well, I don't know. The Weather and Terrain expansion pack is going to add quite a lot to replay value to the game. Um, effectively, you've got like two different modes that you can work, you can play together or play separately. So weather ha- has these kind of temporary effects on the way particular units or ranks operate for your turn and your opponent's turn. So weather only lasts for a short period of time. Um, and that's kind of played off to the side of the board, so you know it's kind of irrelevant when it comes to the playing. For the terrain, though, you actually lay that rather than portrait, where you're normally playing cards portrait, you lay it landscape mm-hmm. over rectangles on the play mat, if you can imagine. Yeah. Um, and then as you lay cards on top of it, you still have the kind of sides of that card, the, the very edges of it visible, with the kind of effects still there um, you know, displayed as symbols. So you can still see what it is, you know, even yeah. though you're covering up the illustration. And so having a good quality play mat to play that on top of I'm kind of thinking to myself, actually, I can really understand why people would want that. Yeah. There's, it's funny, there's a lot of games out there which don't have much to them, but they come in huge boxes, don't they? We've got um, Aunt Park, for example, is a massive box. Well, it's yeah. not massive, but it's a big box, considering all that's in it is about two packs of cards and a little mm-hmm. bag of wooden bits. There's a lot of wasted space in there, but you're right, it's... Yeah, when people are paying 20, 30 quid for a game, they want to feel like they're getting something substantial, don't they? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I find it really strange uh, when I go into a shop, I look at games and flip over the box and have a look at how many components. And often I'll think to myself, well, this game can't be particularly well designed if it's got that many different bits. Because I'm sure all these different bits, they're all different mechanics that you know, 
I can't think that somebody started thinking, okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to have a pile of this over here, this over here, this over here, this over here, and we're going to have this deck of cards that does that, and that deck of cards that does this, and that deck yeah, of cards that's that does that. Yeah, that's day one at Fantasy Flight Games. Games yeah. are That's the first thing you learn. Yeah, <laughs> Never right. have one deck when you could have five. <laughs> <laughs> so many decks that do the same thing, really, kind of, don't add too much. I don't know. I mean, I'd kind of always avoided playing deck-building games um, in the past, um, and finally, over Christmas, started to get into like Dominion and Seven Wonders, and playing those games and thinking, right, so there are all these expansion packs that are available for these games, but they really do just add more cards that don't fundamentally change the game. They just add a small <laughs> amount of novelty to what is already a core idea, if you see what I mean. It doesn't yeah. really change it. It's mm. just a little bit more of the thing you already like. <laughs> But then that's there's a lot of people that's all they want. They know they like it and they want more of it. They don't more want to try something new. More munchkin expansions. There aren't <laughs> exactly. enough munchkin expansions. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah. It's alarming though, isn't it? I like munchkin. I mean, it makes yeah, it seems to many, work, doesn't it? But how many people out there do you think like just have those shelves full of all? You know, I own all of the munchkin expansions, guys. We're gonna get together on Saturday. And we're gonna play with all of them at once. It's gonna be brilliant. <laughs> If you try, if you try playing the first one, you won't get through it in a day. Well, that's the thing. I mean, the big, you know, Munchkin is always really fun for about fifteen minutes, and then twenty, and then the fun just slides down to a point of zero fun, uh, in my opinion. It, unless it first two wins, in which case you get some small, small semblance of satisfaction. But mostly, then people are just happy it's over. Well, I'm, I'm not going to comment on that because I don't think we're we're yet big enough to uh, slag off Steve Jackson. But if you feel that you're <laughs> well, this is just up to that level now, then well, no, it's, it's... I think you're allowed an opinion. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But or, also, you know, let, let's not forget about all of the delightful humans on Board Game Geek and all of the really informative things they have to say. Like even the most incredibly well-designed games. I'm just another idiot, Steve Jackson Games, if you're listening to this. Um, <laughs> what you're doing is working. So, yeah. so um, anything more to say about the Kickstarter success then? Um, well, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm hugely thankful to everybody who got involved and, and you know, helped us. I mean, it, it was a massive group effort. Um, I'd, I'd say anyone who's thinking of embarking upon one... Um, set your sights in a reasonable place, if you know what I mean. For us, you know, we asked for a lot of money, and when we embarked on it, we didn't really think about it in those terms, um, because we costed everything up based on everything that we've done so far, and kind of went, well, that's how much it costs to make a game like this, and to make it a game that's not just released in a small way through Kickstarter, but it's released everywhere. Um, so if you're embarking on Kickstarter and you don't have a fan base to help you, um, I'd say try to scale back in any way you possibly can because it's far better to have a successful Kickstarter campaign, deliver on that Kickstarter campaign, and build your community that way rather than kind of shooting to deliver to retail in a big way because that's quite speculative and it's quite risky and it's quite scary. Um, and it also means that just the practicalities of delivering on a campaign um, so much harder to reach your goals. Okay. Well, so good, good advice. advice. Uh, good advice. Yeah, so. Okay. 
So we'll have a wee break, and uh, when we come back, we'll talk to Martin about uh, uh, world building. Okay, welcome back to Dicing with Design, and we're talking uh, about uh, world building and designing uh, worlds for which to have your wish to have your games and we're joined again with Martin Vox. Ahoy. <laughs> Indeed, Black Box Games of and Lord of Wars Lords of War fame. Get it right. And uh, now the reason I wanted to talk to you about uh, world building was the fact that you've actually you know behind the 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 art and behind the design of the game there is uh, you, you've done uh, quite a bit of work in, in creating this world in which these these armies will, will fight. Um, how, how did you go about that? Was that um, you looked at the original design, and then did you go away right away to look at uh, your fancy setting, or did that come much later? Well, I, in a strange way, um, because my game designing has tended to come out of role playing anyway, um, it's quite hard for me to think of a game without a theme being a major element. And what happened with Lords of War is Nick was the guy who originally came up with the core Lords of War mechanic with the points on the corners and the edges of the cards and the shield values. Um, and for him, theme isn't massively important. Uh, you know, it just has to be, you know, a Napoleonic game or a fantasy game or a World War game because he is primarily a war gamer. Whereas for me, I can't really get too engaged in a war-type game uh, unless it has a pretty heavy theme. So really it was selfish motivation. I wanted things to care about uh, that were a little bit more beyond arrows and pointers and numbers. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I think, yeah... I suppose when we first talked about talking about world building, we always go back to um, the game that, well, the game that I played most in the start, and uh, I guess you guys too, Warhammer, and the worlds around that, like all the fluff and how much people get into the fluff in that. Um, and it does make a big difference, I suppose. Like, I have to admit, I didn't read the fluff at the start. I got my first army was dwarfs. Uh, I liked them because I thought dwarfs were quite cool, because you know, they're kind of angry guys with big beards. That sounds good to me. Uh, but I didn't really read about the history and stuff like that, and it was only after a little while that I actually pulled out the book and read the history stuff. When we, it was when we started playing a narrative game, actually, so that we we were getting into writing the stories ourselves. So I was kind of looking for fodder on um, you know things to put into the story history for the guys that I was talking about. And that's when I started looking at the fluff, and actually I became a bit more interested in it. I started reading all the Black Library books after that. Yeah, um, Black Library. What an awesome resource. I mean, those guys... <laughs> You know, as much as Games Workshop are hated by enormous numbers of people in the world, yeah. particularly at the moment, you have to tip your hat to them because they have really supplied a vast amount to flesh out their universe. And it's stuff yeah. that they didn't need to do. Yeah, yeah. I'd say what they didn't need to do is make it really high quality. They, they could have just kicked out these things like people do for computer games, but actually they're very readable. Um, yes. Well, mostly well written. Yep. Yeah. Definitely. I you know so, I play a huge number of video games, and I'm not only almost constantly disappointed by the writing 
for cutscenes and that kind of thing. But also, whenever you're looking at the kind of background information, you know, you can always head into your menu and get some more expositional information about the new sword you picked up or the land you're walking through and all that sort of stuff. And I kind of just think, what's the point in all of this? It's not adding anything to the experience. If anything, it is just padding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, going back to Lords of War, uh, what 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 was the first bit of the world that you sort of looked at? Was it the geography, or did you just start off on one of the races and say that oh, this is what I want to be sort of cool about these guys? Okay, well, I mean, it kind of goes back to my teenage years when I fell madly in love with fantasy literature. So, I mean, Tolkien was like you know obviously a huge, huge, huge event. When I read Lord of the Rings in particular, but, I mean, The Hobbit, as a young teenager, really did blow my mind. Up to that point, I hadn't really read too much really thoughtful, clever, deep fantasy. You know, I read my Red Wall books and some books by a guy named Robin Jarvis and everything, you know, all that kind of stuff, and tried Pratchett and that kind of thing, and it wasn't long before I beasted through a whole load of fantasy and was trying to write my own fantasy epics. And, you know, I can say it now, failing spectacularly as I tried. Um, and so I've never stopped doing that when it comes to writing RPG scenarios and that kind of thing. Uh, I was always writing characters and, and worlds and continents and everything else. And Part of what interests me now in, in fantasy is kind of making a statement on the expected or commenting on why the races in fantasy are the way they are in your particular fantasy world. So for me it was like, right, okay, if we're going to do dwarves, let, let's try and figure out why the dwarves are the way they are. So for them very early on, you know, I was thinking, why are there never any female dwarves in fantasy? Or there are, but rarely. You know, you don't see that many females. Well, they get they get mixed up. Yeah, it's the it's it's the beards. Yeah, totally, and that's a kind of a long-standing fantasy thing, isn't it? Is that you know you kind of have the bearded ladies that that aren't you know feminine really, um, and I wanted to have proper female feminine dwarves. Uh, in in my fantasy universe and have for ages and so back when I was writing uh, my own fantasy stories I came up with this idea that basically at the, at the time when the reader enters into that world there's basically been a, a kind of blight that's affected lots of dwarf women and has meant that effectively female dwarves are just born less frequently They're, you know Effectively, they can't carry female dwarves to term, so female dwarves become rarer and rarer and rarer as time goes on. I thought that was an interesting way of then thinking about the way that dwarves drink and fight and act so aggressively, because effectively you've got all these male dwarves with no ladies around. Yeah. What else are they going to do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> carry their frustrations in other ways. Yeah, well, exactly. Uh, <laughs> you know, they will build bloody great big holes in the ground because that is one way to vent that. And <laughs> just keep hammering away at something. Yeah, um, it's a bit Freudian as well, I suppose. Well, that that was my thinking. Is that it kind of is? You know, they're building massive great holes that they're all climbing down into. Like there is there is something in that. Um, so yeah, that, that was kind of the, the dwarves. Then they're 
they're not a new idea, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, orcs, for me, uh, are harder. I think they're a really, really tricky race. Um, yeah. Because when you think Sorry, about can it, I just ask, uh, why, did you, why did you go kind of down the Tolkien-esque route, then, especially if, if orcs were a bit hard? Why did you choose to go for the like, classic races? I mean, apart from the lizards, I suppose, who are who well, the classic Tolkien. Yeah, I think part... Part of it was we knew as launching, a, you know, we were launching our, our first ever game, we needed to have something that was a recognisable hook for people to um, to get into quickly. Uh, if, if someone's going to pick your game up off the shelves, it's a lot harder to make that connection if they don't know anything about the game at all and the races contained within it. Um, so I wanted to use archetypal races, but to not have cliched storyline or cliche characters or a cliched world and you know it's quite hard to do that and I'm not sure that I've been entirely successful as I've uh, you know kind of built it up over time and, and will continue to build it but yeah I mean it went, that all goes back to the market research we did right at the beginning with Lords of War because we could have made it a game kind of about any army really it could have been uh, about a modern day uh, troop fighting in Vietnam, it, it could have been a sci-fi themed game, um, it could have been a Napoleonic game. And, um, effectively, yeah. we, we kind of built all those different Lords of War um, decks, well not, not completely, but quite a lot of them, to make sure that there is enough variety between the, the different ways that the armies fight. But when we were doing market research really near the beginning, and we, you know, we spent about six to eight months, I suppose, going to different game shows and gaming clubs and talking to gamers and asking them to fill out surveys. And, and you know, we did have by the end hundreds of surveys filled out, and everyone was banging the drum for fantasy. So we knew, okay, we've got to go fantasy. We've got to make it somewhat recognisable. Um, then, when we were halfway through the art working process, um, we realised that we were going to be launching reasonably close to the point where Peter Jackson's Hobbit was coming out as well, so I thought, oh, well, that's kind of fortuitous, let's do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was, yeah, thinking back to the art as you are saying that as well, because you're wanting to make it as, um, again, it comes back to accessibility. You, you've got a, a, an excellent children's um, illustrator to, to do this work, uh, as, as well as making it a recognisable setting. Yeah, we. I mean, Nick is absolutely obsessed with the idea of having like giant insects in a Lord's Wardrobe, <laughs> cool. and we built them. Um, and I'm really up for the idea of doing a kind of Amazons themed deck because I would like just a deck of really badass warrior ladies. I think that would be really, really exciting. <laughs> they but, need to like um, team up with the dwarves, and then they could be happy together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what might happen, Joe? Who knows? <laughs> Um, but with, with that, it's such a harder sell. If somebody were to approach you with a game that is themed around dwarves, you go, okay, well, I know what to expect. Or so yeah. Whereas if it's Amazons versus insect men... I would buy that in a second. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So you're would, not exactly <laughs> usual, though. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true, but... Amazons versus insectoids, yeah. Yeah, I massively hope that we get there. I really, really do. Um, yeah. And, you know, my compromise in the, in the meanwhile was, yes, we'll get the lizard men out there. Um, I don't care who tells me that nobody knows what lizard men are. If I can have, like, a giant T-Rex-type dude with an axe, yes, yes, I want that, please. <laughs> 
Um, but with the orcs in, in Lords of War, um, you've got that very, very awkward issue of effectively Tolkien, who is, you know, kind of progenitor of all of this lore and, and fluff and everything else. Yeah, you know, his orcs are horribly, racistly portrayed. You know, they are black-skinned, stinking, uh, dreadlocked creatures um, that come from a kind of hot place. And uh, you kind of can't really avoid this awkwardness surrounding orcs. So for me, it was like, right, how do we do orcs but get them really far away from that um, kind of racist stereotyping awkwardness that kind of exists in, in old fantasy? Um, and yet still have that kind of animalistic brutality. Uh, how does that work? How do you do it? And they for sure have been the hardest to do any kind of... You can't really have a society as orcs, can you? How, how does that work? Yeah. <laughs> they don't get along. They like to kill stuff, and that's pretty much their defining characteristic. Yeah, I've not seen the orcs one yet. Who are they against again? Is it dwarf snorks? Yeah, yeah orcs yeah. versus dwarves, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what we did with our orcs is they are um, a long, 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 long time ago, they were one of the uh, elf tribes, and they effectively were led by the one elf that loved war, more, yeah, the kind of elf king that loved to fight and dominate and uh, couldn't, be restrained in the way that other elves could be restrained. And and so he led a war against the other elves, got absolutely trounced, and you know, he made alliances with all of the fallen creatures, with you know, spiders and, and trolls and giants and all that kind of stuff, worms and creepy things that live in caves, because um, they were the only kind of power base that he could find. And then the time we meet the orcs in the Lords of War storyline, there's kind of been this massive interbreeding process in which this tribe fled after getting absolutely trounced by the elves, um, well, kind of progenitor elves, if you see what I mean, left, and then they kind of had this intermingling where their egos were pretty much destroyed as, as a civilization, and they were pretty much ruined, and they've been living in caves, fighting only each other, and not really been brave enough, I suppose, to head out and lead another massive campaign and, and that's kind of a jumping off point for our orcs is now it's time that they're actually going to lead a bloody massive campaign. And the orcs in the Orcs versus Dwarf pack are actually a group of orcs led by an old orc, which again is something that I think is quite novel. You don't often see old orcs in fantasy. Um, but our guy has been smart enough to live through Lots of different chieftains killing each other, civil wars and everything else, you know, underground between all these orcs. And he sees that the new chieftains are planning to lead another campaign against the elves. They're planning to sail across the ocean and, and fight the massive elven kingdom. Um, and he doesn't want that to happen because he's convinced that that will be the end of the orc if that happens. So he decides to lead another campaign, this small group, off to fight the dwarves as a kind of distraction, in a way. He's trying to lead the orcs away from fighting the elves and to encourage them to fight the dwarves who are in a slightly weakened state because of this blight, this disease that's affected them. Um, cool. So yeah, um, that's that. I'd like to go back to your point on um, having archetypes that 
could well be found offensive. Um, yeah. It's something you really want to avoid if you're building a world, um, <laughs> I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, unless you're working for a very select market. <laughs> but, um, well, I mean, something you want to avoid, but then when you're creating a race and all of these societies pick up bits and pieces from real life, they, they, they have to, but then you, picking kind of negative traits from a single group and then make it obvious where they came from. Uh, yeah, and that's, yeah, that's pretty d different. And I mean, to, to me, that's the first time I've kind of heard the Tolkien Hawks described that way. Well, I think which I can. Oh, that's interesting. I can, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, some I, of what I, you're saying. I, I see. Part of the issue for me, I did an English literature degree, <laughs> and I, I specialised in Tolkien. <laughs> I went, I went quite deep into Tolkien. And um, if you think about it, you've got your Easterlings, who are Eastern yeah. Asian -y types of yeah, race. they seem quite racist. Like they're the evil humans who come yeah. from the Orient. <laughs> um, but then, if if you also think about your orcs and goblins, I mean, and and it's no better demonstrated in the Peter Jackson movies. Actually, most of the orcs in the original Lord of the Rings trilogy, Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings trilogy, they are just kind of massive hulking black skinned dudes uh, with dreads who are out to kill. Isn't that the Urukai though? Isn't that the different? Yeah. They, were, they were the new race created by Saruman. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Who were given Saruman. black skin? Which uh, different? Even, yeah, but even the even the goblins in Tolkien's descriptions are still black skinned. Um, and Peter Jackson chose to make almost all of the baddies in inverted commas black skinned in the original. Uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy. Now, I'm not saying that I think that Tolkien was deliberately going out of his way to paint those races as uh, evil, you know, in, in terms of like, you know, those sections of the globe, sections of the human civilization as evil. But I just think that he wasn't necessarily thinking particularly about how perhaps uh, what he was saying might inflect uh, upon people's views of particular civilizations. And, and he and C.S. Lewis are just as bad. I mean, in C.S. Lewis, you've got, uh, again, all the kind of Eastern civilizations are bad and not to be trusted. The Turks, as well, are obviously very evil in, in his universes. Um, and meanwhile, you've got the elves, who are the kind of pale-skinned, blue-eyed, blonde, uh, Aryan side of it. And then you've got the hobbits, who are the kind of... Um, you know, like brown-haired, regular, humans are too, uh, but the elves, they're the kind of the most aspirational, perfect people in uh, in Tolkien's uh, universe. And then kind of down the pecking order at the bottom, at the most evil, you've got the uh, swarthiest of the races that he describes. Yeah. I think it's very much of its time as well. I mean, we're, we're judging things by... By in, in more enlightened times, uh, say nowadays it's the it's the Cockneys that that, that seem to be the most degenerate. <laughs> <laughs> Estuary English is the is the language of the orcs. Yeah, yeah, but it's also interesting how, for example, the Drow have changed. Like like the way the Drow in D and D were treated when the Drow first came out, they were not to be trusted. Uh, obviously, they they were the black skinned elf, but they were all thieves, rogues, assassins, murderers, and originally. The baddies. You didn't play as drow. They were there to be killed. And then now, mm. drow are amongst the coolest races that you can, or coolest elf subgroups that you can play as. And those kind of assassin, thief, 
murderer qualities have become Dual scimitar wielders. Yeah, part of the appeal of, of the drow. So you know, we as a society have changed enormously, even since the 1980s, in the way that kind of you know racial violence in this country was still a massive issue at that point. And now, of course, we don't like to think of ourselves as as racist, but we still are passively in so many different ways. So yeah, it's just a little bit of an awkward point with a, with a lot of that kind of older high fantasy. Or it's not it's not I don't think intentional. I just think it's kind of an accidental product of the time and, and you know with Lords of War I, I really wanted to consciously rail against that in any way I possibly could. I'm sure in 50 years people will be analysing your game and just walk behind it and be disgusted by something we didn't even think of. I'd like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> I, still, I still don't have any really openly gay characters though and I need to work on that. It's a bit familiar. Uh, I just well, don't that... want to be about it. Well that's an area where in the last even 10 years in popular, in popular culture you would see, you see a huge difference. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hugely. Um, you mean fantasy? There's been a few well, fantasy books I've read actually where the main guy was uh, was gay. What was it? That it was a really characters. good one. Yeah, the main guy. Um, it was a really good series of books. I can't remember the name of it now. It was Conan. A, no, no. <laughs> Not Conan. Yeah. It'll come back to me. But yeah, it was this sort of short wielding, like proper uh, warrior guy. And uh, about two chapters in, suddenly it was found in bed with. Uh, you know, it was described. It was really cleverly described because it was him in bed with somebody and describing it as like a basically you put it in your head that it was a woman, and then about three or four pages in, suddenly said um, and grabbed his cock basically. Yeah. <laughs> <That's fantastic. laughs> poetic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was all poetic, and then it suddenly turned. Uh... <laughs> if you go back to, if you go back say ten or so years, uh, a Game of Thrones book. The you know Renly Baratheon is gay, but even that's hidden in in in, in a setting where you where almost nothing is hidden. Yeah, the fact yeah. that he's gay is kind of and you know. Well, it's subtle anyway. Yeah. Yeah, you read it back, you wonder what how you couldn't pick up on it. But <laughs> that that was that was the deep dark secret incest. That was that was that was the subtext. That was very much <laughs> the the over text. Yeah. Yeah. Thing, if, if you want to be critical of Game of Thrones, and you know, I, I love a lot of what Game of Thrones has done, but it jumps to some of the most shocking kind of bywords for injustice as ways of engaging an audience, um, including incest and rape, obviously, uh, and putting children in terrible, terrible peril. Now, there is a side of me that goes, yeah, that is... Uh, totally justifiable adult fiction, but there's on the other side part of me that goes, well, that is exploitation of the highest order, exploitation of the reader and their perceptions. Now, you know, obviously George R. R. Martin knows what he's doing. He knew what he was doing to start off with, and he continues to know what he's doing. I think. I think he still knows what he's doing. I think he knows what. He's doing. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, anyway, yeah, I don't think he knows how it's going to end, does he? No, no, well, no I, think, I think he's hoping he's going to before it ends. I think that's his hope. <laughs> yeah, and then Brendan Sanders can, can take it over and write it well. <laughs> George R. R. Martin, burn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was curious actually, Martin. You, so you're you've obviously written a fair bit of fluff about this. Are you planning to work in this up the bigger cart 
characters that you've come up with into the cards. So will you be having, I know you had command cards as an add-on for the Kickstarter, but will yeah. you be releasing sort of booster packs for the races, or do you plan to get a bit more storyline in, the, in this? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, what, what I'd like to do on, on the one side is to just keep writing stories that aren't necessarily related to the card game. Um, but also, I'd like to like I've already got some characters who've appeared and maybe disappeared and gone to do something else within the stories that are already there, um, who are planned to be in expansion packs. So we've got a an Orcs versus Dwarves and an Elves versus Lizardmen and a Templars versus Undead sequel pack, if you see what I mean. So each of them have their own sequel pack, which introduces spell casting, monstrous creatures. Um, flying creatures and more units, basically. Um, and we're really proud of those. We think they're really fun and, again, think that they add quite a lot to the gameplay mechanics. But we're not at a point where I think we can justify the financial risk to actually manufacture them. Who knows, in a, in a year's time, that might be possible. Um, whatever the case is, I'm going to continue building the universe and keep on doing fun stuff with characters new and old, really. Um, the key to those stories, as have been published already on the website, is they lead up to the point where you're fighting the battle, if you see what I mean. So mm, yeah. stories finish literally at the point where the armies meet. Then mm. you're fighting that fight, and when I release, well, when we, when you know, Nick and I get around to releasing the expansion packs, we're going to have to basically decide who's won. It's <laughs> quite tricky. Uh, well, the, you know, and also, who's dead? Who's alive? Like, which command cards survived this round of yeah. fight and live to fight another day? Who might we be able to release as special edition ghost versions of themselves, for example? <laughs> pretty sweet. Um, who also might change? I don't know if you've read the Elves vs. Lizardmen stories, but there's this fight that's going on about this dragon egg, which is about to be hatched. It's being hatched while the fight is taking place. So one of these races is going to end up having a dragon. Is that going to be the elves? And if so, which character? And Or is it going to be the lizard men? And if so, which character? Um, then we can create cards whereby we've actually got a dragon riding version of a character that already exists, potentially. Yeah, yeah. That's massively exciting. Um, <laughs> so it's your aim to actually have a, a dynamic uh, world uh, yeah. rather than uh, hit, hit the reset button to make everything kind of still... No, beyond you know, that, static. I mean, it might sound a little bit mental um, and overly ambitious, and it is definitely overly ambitious, but we've got a plan for um, steampunk Lords of War, and we've got the mechanics sketched out steampunk Lords of War, and our idea is that you know we're seeing in fantasy battles um, all of these different races fighting one another and kind of being tribal and factional in the way that they behave. For the steampunk version, we want to have basically everyone living together in cities, all the different races living together in cities, but different political motivations for why they're fighting. So the technology's mm -hmm. moved along, they're using different weapons, but you've got you know orcs in top hats and steel toe cap boots. <laughs> um, and you know, fighting uh, elves riding on penny farthings with rockets. <laughs> <laughs> That is where I'd like yes. to go with it. Um, 
And so I kind of I, I know to a certain degree where I want to go with that. Um, but what I'd like to do is is make the tournament scene, and we're working on this big tournament system at the moment. Um, I'd like the results of the tournaments to dictate who wins what. If you see, yep, L five R cell. And I think that could be a really, really interesting and exciting way of going. Um, yeah. Particularly because I have, you know, after Orcs vs. Dwarves 2, Elves vs. Lizardmen 2, and Templars vs. Undead 2, I would like to finish those storylines and just kind of have those races be done and, and do other stuff. You know, I do want to do Amazons versus these insect guys. Um, I also <laughs> want to do something cool, finally, with Ratman. You know, Skaven, they are much maligned. I think there is cool stuff to be done with them. Um, and I also want to do some stuff with Vikings. I'd like to do stuff with, like, uh, centaurs and kind of satyrs and a more, like, Roman centurion. Classical kind of. style. Yeah, classical style. But, but to blend up those kind of mythical creatures with, you know, some humans wearing kind of Rome, Roman style, Greek style. Uh, weapons, armor, and all the rest of it, and, and have that kind of birth of democracy <clears> taking <throat> place as a theme in a game. Like I think you know, games are a really good opportunity to explore bigger ideas. And, you know, with Lords of War, you can choose to completely ignore all of the law stuff, but hopefully <laughs> there is extra kind of thought to and discussion to be had amongst the people who play Lords of War with you um, from the law that we worked on. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I wonder is I wonder which one's the most desirable to most people in terms of actually making a like having a small number of races that expand massively and you've got loads of choices within those races. Or whether actually people would prefer to see twenty, thirty, forty different races just, you know, one pack. <laughs> so don't yeah. have an expansion for any of them but have blown thirty different ones, like ten different fifteen different types of humans, all that yeah, type of stuff. Definitely. I th I think you you know, Munchkin is an exception in the sense that it's it's kept on rolling and rolling and rolling and rolling and God knows how many more Munchkin expansions they're going to be able to produce and still turn a profit. I do not presume at all that we are going to get anywhere close to that. So in my mind, it's kind of going, right, if this is the plan, at least that should be achievable. You know, and, and if yeah. anything else happens, any extras, that would be absolutely fantastic. Um, but, I mean, you know, I'd like to be doing um, World War Two as well, and then having, mm. you know, Nazis versus Orcs, or an Orc and Nazi mix army versus <laughs> Napoleon, um, I think. You know, that kind of stuff would be, in my mind, really, really cool. And I don't think there have been too many games that have ever attempted to do something like that. Cool. Okay, right, I think we're uh, getting ready for our next guest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, our, our pal Matt. But, uh, <laughs> we'll have a good old time, guys. It's been a distinct pleasure. And uh, yeah, anytime you want to have me on again, you just let me know. <laughs> well, thanks again for coming, Byron. It's been great talking to you. It's awesome. Yeah, it's been, it's been a Take blast, guys. Congratulations again, and see you later. Yeah. Thank you very much. Bye bye. All right. Talk to you later. And welcome back to Dicing with Design. 
uh, world building episode. Uh, once again, we have Colin and Joe, and we're joined by our good friend, finally to the show. We're always talking about him, Matthew Reed. So, Matthew, take a bow. I have bowed. <laughs> well done. Okay, uh, Matthew, of course, um, if you thank you for having me on. You're quite well. Um, uh, long-time listeners will know that um, Matthew's uh, our GM for our long, very long-running uh, uh, master campaign, uh, When Worlds Collide. Um, yeah, what is it now, 15 years or something? Yeah. yeah. I mean, More. I was thinking for a while, I mean, role-playing's been going for how long? Well, it's actually an anniversary of D&D just now, isn't it? This is a big anniversary. Is it the, is it the 50th anniversary or something of D&D? Yeah, we're not that old. No, we're not that old. No, but we've actually playing this game for a significant significant proportion of the time that it's actually been available to do, which is quite cool. Anyway, so we've got Matt on because we're looking to talk about about world building, continue our theme for the for the episode, and just about uh, Matt's inspirations and uh, sort of the history of, of how he started developing the world. Um, so Matt, do you want to tell us where the where this uh, where your fantasy world started from? Back to take us back to the origins. Yeah, well, I suppose it started from the fevered brain of, of a fifteen-year-old adolescent, um, penciling down on this frayed piece of paper with you know another friend of mine called called Dan um, yeah and it sort of sprung from there uh, it's uh, sort of metamorphosed and evolved throughout throughout the years as we've played cool so is that with that the was that the um, origins then you and Dan sitting down together and was he playing yeah. character Jurgen at that point or was the yeah no he yeah. was yeah I thought he was just about to no in fact no actually I, I remember now he 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 hadn't rolled it yet. I was creating the world as he was rolling his character. That's how okay. it worked. That's how it that's how it started. Um, but it's it's quite a dark and gritty world now. But I can remember whilst whilst I was first drawing it, there was actually a crystal bridge or something, something like something out of like out of My Little Pony or something that <laughs> <laughs> go over the crystal bridge to the capital city or something. You know is. And it's changed and evolved as, as I have, as I've read different types of literature and watched different types of film, been inspired by different different things and genres and writers. And uh, yeah, it's it's it, yeah, it's an evolving world for a, for a game. It's a gamer's world that's evolved with the players, and not just your group, but with the, the other group that I play with <clears throat> in the same world, but with different different types of characters. Yeah, do characters who don't get along. Um, Sorry, Grant. Just saying, let me say, what, what was in there in the start? You're saying Dan's creating his character and you've created a world, but was there any sort of core part of the world? Was there anything you thought, like, this will be the, I don't know, this will be the main empire or build this this country first? Or did you have, like, an idea of a, a meta plot or anything like that? Or gods, creation myths, anything like that? Or was, was that just not on the table at that point? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good question. I think, um, yeah, I don't know. It, I suppose it was just centered in a, a country called called Dragos, which is basically just your quintessential medieval world, really. Uh, and then building on the 
uh, almost sort of George R. Martin-esque sort of building on the houses around that. Not that I'd heard of George R. Martin then, or he even started writing that, I don't even know. And um, all the different houses and politics that, 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 that go around that. Yeah, so... Uh, so so yeah, that 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 should have been my question. Uh, what is the, what is the what is the world made of? What are the major parts? You have, you have this you have this one country, Dragos, and the houses within it. Um, maybe you could describe Dragos to us as it stands, I suppose, as it's built yeah, up to be. I suppose it's sort of what's what's the genre? I suppose it's low magic. Would you agree? Oh, is it really? Um, well, not for low, us, but in general. It's it's difficult, isn't it? Because there's there's kind of lots of, not lots, but magical creatures can suddenly play a big role in the world. But to the normal folk, magic's very rare and scarcely seen. But there can be like yeah. these kind of outbreaks. Um, but I think you'd probably class it as as low magic from a player point of view. Like magic using player characters are pretty rare, aren't they? Or powerful yeah. magic using characters are, are very rare to be encountered especially in, in Dragos as Dragos being like the heart of the the heart of the game even though it's only one city uh, and only one state in the the world isn't there yeah that's right and mag magic the the, ch the church is is very sort of the the one god is worshipped by, by many in Dragos and part, part of the tenant of that religion is that magic is banned as evil as the work work of the devil <clears throat> which sort of limits limits its power but also means that people who, who can use it and do get away with using it in secret can can influence others and extend their power <clears throat> if they can as long as they don't get caught yes exactly you find just fireballs you. help with that <laughs> fireballs always help but just hearing you talk about that Matt as well it strikes me that it's um, unlike most um, fantasy RPG settings it's very heavily influenced by Christianity, isn't it? By a, a monotheistic religion being at the centre of everything. Yeah, I think so. Know? Yeah, which is probably down to the fact that when I was sort of when I was creating that part of the world at the age of sixteen, I was reading, you know, I was reading the Bible and I was reading, I was reading the Quran, and reading, the, you know, the monotheistic religions, and just inspired by it, I suppose. And then. You know there are there are other religions. There's Tanab, so there's the there's Tan, the far the father god, and other sort of, and the pantheon uh, in that part of the world. And as you go as you go west beyond the the ecclesiastical classical houses, you get to the sort of the Ustragothic chords and all the pagan gods there. Oh, yeah, I mean there's the yeah. the yeah the the world is expanding. There's little ideas, but I only really go into detail into parts of the world when you guys decide you're going to visit a certain part. Yeah, so there's, there's definitely this sort of bubble of, of adventure that surrounds the party. Yeah. Yeah. It's going back like to that bit, isn't it? <laughs> so it's a bit like, it's like where the, the position of the observer determines the reality or determines the extent of the world that exists. It doesn't exist until it is observed. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a, it's a game, and it's a gaming world made for gamers as we game, when yeah. we game. It's not. It's not a literary world. I'm not. In, I'm not. I haven't invented it to to write a novel about it or or create an well, adventure think... module or anything like that. It's um. It's it's for ten people basically, more or less. 
the uh, the Dragos group, you guys, and the uh, the what do we call the campaign when worlds collide? Yeah. And the uh, the Heart of Sith campaign with the with the other gaming group. It's the same world, diff- different aspects of the world, but it's the bits that I create are created when you decide you're going there. Mm-hmm. And I only write. Well, you, you know, there are all these. Sorry, you're saying you put so you put all these hooks there just at the edge of just yeah. at the edge of our consciousness. I think that's my style of gemming. It's not it's not railroad. It's more sandbox. So mm-hmm. there's there's tons of the parts of this world that's in my head that I'd love to explore myself through you guys gaming it. So I w- I will naturally just put in those you know those elements those elements in mm-hmm. um, for, for for I don't know for example. Or what are the plot elements at the moment that are pulling you in different directions, which can be frustrating, I suppose, as mm. in a way. Sometimes you want sort of you want to be railroaded down a particular yeah. route, you know, and just have a quest oh, yeah. on on a plate. If that makes sense, but yeah. Um, well, can you take us into some some more of the world then? Because one one of the one of the things I like are just how many factions are are fighting each other. Uh, in this, you have the church and and the state of Dragos, which are at times are, are at odds with each other. Um, especially when I have my way, as a very as a kind of a very powerful character, uh, usually against the church. Um, you also have these other world um, factions. I am pumping you for information about these. Yeah, because no, <laughs> <laughs> they're still me. secret after so many years. You tell me what do you what do you know what do. You... Mm, well, when when we came into the game, it seemed like the world was very um, fully well, not fully formed, but it seemed like there was a lot there already to be explored that maybe maybe you'd already like kind of uh, mapped out because of the other groups game. But you know, yeah, we yeah. got thrown straight into we were in Dragos City, and then there was basically a demonic attack, a demonic incursion, wasn't there? there was, like our baptism of fire, our characters had to just survive that. Yeah, it was First horrible. Yeah, and you did survive it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you look disappointed. Oh, oh yeah, I wasn't expecting that. This could be a one-off session, you know, play you guys for a week, and that'll be the end of it. But no, fifteen years later, <laughs> you're still alive. In fact, Jeffrey Jeffrey Hardoni's got like nine fate points. You're not. I think I had to use I had to, I had to use one or two. So, yeah, fate points which just which save you. Uh, yeah, from dying, I'm 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 not gonna die anytime soon. It might make you crippled. Though fate points are a complete get of jail free card, um, in under under your system, uh, but probably more in the system uh, uh, later. I, I like yeah, when we're thrown in, we're thrown in this three way battle, uh, or at least three ways, uh, with all these factions coming together. And it reminds me, were you in Half Life at that point? Yeah, yeah, it's Half Life. Half Life, yeah, Half Life definitely. Uh, um, so computer games, another, you know, another source of source of inspiration. You could probably track back these different creatures that I've invented and sort of chart matter sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, depending on when he invented these crazy creatures or or characters. So, um, yeah, I think that was heavily playing Half Life during that gaming session. Yes. Yeah, because we had uh, you know in Half Life, you spoilers. Sorry for this fifteen twenty year old game. Uh, well, you're you start off with a demonic incursion into into your uh, scientific um, research facility, and then the soldiers come to save you. Yeah. They they're they're trying to contain the contain the 
um, information and uh, contain the whole problem by by shooting you dead, and you wind up in the middle of yeah, battles, so like, battles. And that's exactly what the yeah, kind so it's of like, kind of... it was Half Life, but in the medieval setting in a city, basically. Yeah. And trying that idea of trying to escape from a confined space, which in Half Life was the laboratory, but in the but in this. This game was 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 the city and the geographical features that were blocking your way, like sewers and rivers and museums and wrecked streets and barricades and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so maybe go into into a bit about, about these factions. Or first of all, we have the Imalu. I think we've uh, discovered they're called the um, ancient uh, order of of wizards who seem to. Be living long past their their normally allotted time spans by by hundreds of years. Uh, yeah, so you have these these individuals, which I can't quite remember which of them your characters have met. I'm getting confused between the two game systems, so I need to be careful um, what I'm saying. So so I don't give you guys any spoilers. But um, yes, yeah, so this idea of the, this this ancient faction of people who had pioneered magic and the creation of magic and the the use of it to travel to other planets and to and to other worlds and that of that of course in ancient past went disastrously wrong and created a cataclysm in true fantasy genre setting of the dark times and the end times um, and uh, unleashed the demons upon the world. But some of the some of these ancient magicians survived as throughout throughout the ages. So the story of their lives and their separate goals as, as individuals, rather than rather than as factions, um, you know, with their own different um, philosophies about life and what they want to achieve, and their occasional interactions with themselves and with other countries and in the world. Yeah, and sort of hidden. <clears throat> there seems to be a theme of them also hidden within the certain of of the great houses as well, which is uh, quite interesting. Yes, yeah. Ravenish. So which which ones are they hidden in again, Matthew? And <laughs> well, what you were covering House Ravenish and uh, yeah. uh, some associations there. Mm -hmm. With um mm -hmm. I can't remember. You guys probably remember more than I do. It's a good thing we write it down. Another faction that that's that again, you know, kind of the two clashed together in in the in the city where orbs fell from the sky and demons seemed to appear, uh, all all manner of them, um, including the the ones that seem to be in charge, the Gel Ying. When you describe a Gel no, Ying to in, us, they're not in charge. They're big and bad, aren't they? But sorry, they're not the ones in charge, are they? Because we've heard of the ones in charge but never encountered them. But Anyway, I thought we were told that they, they were just kind of soldier gelling. I think that's what we were told. Yeah, the gelling anyway. is sort of soldier aristocracy on on uh, from Brother Pink, which is the Brother the Pink, pink, being... the pink, the pink planet, mm -hmm. which comes into orbit every fifteen years. He's quite tight looked, isn't he? <laughs> No, keep going, keep telling us, because this is about might be the only time we get to find out these <laughs> yeah. secrets. Uh, no, but we know a bit more than that. We know that yeah. we've, we've heard tell of the, the controller types um, who are supposed to be the masters of the demons who come from Brother Pink, and uh, there's something to do with the uh, the huge, the colossal um, striders, aren't they? But the controller ones, we've heard mentioned, but we never encountered any of them. But they seem to be the ones who are actually leading the demons. Actually, okay. 
giving them yeah, the my thought is was, it's a bit was yeah, or there's some sort of group, big ugly brain bug. But the striders. Well, maybe let's explain what these striders are. Yeah, hundred. Yeah, we should have we should have pictures that we can bring up on the screen or something, shouldn't we? I'll tell you what, you're. That's impossible with a podcast. <laughs> put it in the put it in the post on the website. Uh, you can actually put them in show notes as well. I think yeah, uh, we can link to it. On the, yeah, because uh, basically they appear as blog as blog posts on the website. So we'll put it up on diceywithdesign.com. So I suppose the influence of striders is sort of somewhere between uh, yeah I don't know war war worlds and um, um, uh, think of the three legged metallic striders well, not metallic but the the creatures uh, and um, what's that Japanese cartoon with those big bugs that's going up through the forest and that what was that called? Oh, I don't know. Can't <laughs> no one knows what I'm talking about. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> someone knows. <laughs> <laughs> hundred foot, three legged, hundred feet bug beasts. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, which sort of have symbiosis with other organisms, which you, which you've named the scuttle bugs, which are little sort of like disc, disc creatures that scuttle on the ground, which jump at their their prey and um, give them an electric shock to the to the chest so strong that it will stop their heart. Or start it again if you're lucky. And then they can restart. Yeah, so they'll climb onto your face. So here we go, aliens, aliens, uh, aliens reference here, aliens inspiration. Uh, implant uh, sort of sort of drug into the into the into the uh, into the minds of the of the of the shocked uh, prey, and then restart its heart. And then they will be the the. the the prey will then become automatons, which will sort of follow the scent of the strider, the smoke oh, yeah. that comes from its uh, chimneys, from its flutes, mm. and, it will f- and it will follow and it will follow them where, wherever it goes. So wherever it settles down, they'll just walk into it, walk up up its sort of pathway up its back, and then into the into the sort of volcanic flutes where they'll burned. just get consumed and burned as a furnace. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, I remember sheep kind of. Uh... Yeah, the sheep, sheep. Yeah, anything, anything that. <laughs> I, I, whenever I think of the Strider, I always think of those uh, beasties in, um, in, uh, oh, what's it called? Johnny Rico, uh, Starship Troopers. Uh, you know, there's yes, a huge yeah. big insectoid oh, that's like massive big legs and it kind of shoots lasers down into the ground. It's the, well, not lasers, it's whatever the plasma they shoot. Uh, there was definitely a Strider looking beastie in that, though. Yeah, I think another one. I think another one that you mean, yeah, yeah. But no, that wasn't an inspiration for that. Sorry, Carl. Oh, <laughs> it always makes me think of Shadow of the, oh, Shadow of the Colossus. Although I think that probably came later, didn't it? Than oh yeah. Shadow of the definitely, yeah. Shadow of the Colossus definitely inspired that. That definitely inspired that session in terms of having it, making it possible to climb up the beast, and that's and the sort of the rules behind that. Cool. Yeah. Hello. That was very cool. Yeah, I think so. that adds, adds a lot to your world, the the uniqueness of the baddies that we're fighting. You know, I mean, we're not fighting orcs and uh, skeletons. Like everything, all of the monsters are unique and seem to have their own history and yeah. their own yeah. like uh, stories behind their creation and things. And they freak out in weird and strange ways. Yeah. Like do the Quite... do the wompity noise, man. <laughs> what does the wompity do? <laughs> 
competent. Yeah, you're right though, Joe. I, it's like we were talking earlier on with Martin about um, people wanting the same old stuff and liking what they're familiar with. But actually, yeah, Matt's is good because it's completely weird and we want to find you're curious about the stuff because that's why we want to find out about Wamperdees and Gillings and all that because we have no idea what the hell they are and what they do so it makes you more curious I think yeah they kill you yeah yeah that's part of it <laughs> <laughs> what yeah. else though what else what are they it's feeling like, when they kill us it's quite demonic I mean it's sort of lo- what, a lot what, of them what, what, quite what makes them tick it's monsters you know what's their motivation exactly exactly <laughs> I find they're quite, there's a lot of sort of demonology, a lot of kind of almost Lovecraftian type uh, creatures that sort of, they almost shouldn't exist, you know, things that come from very different places that kind of shouldn't really exist. Um, have you read much Lovecraft, Matt? Or No, I, I, know, I know Lovecraft, but um, I'm more familiar probably with the artwork than, than the literature. Um, mm-hmm. No, I haven't actually read any Lovecraft, no. All right, okay. But I'm, I'm familiar with um, the genre. I've played Call of Cthulhu a lot mm-hmm. in my in my teens. Aye. Um, so I, I know the genre. Indeed. So yeah, I think that did did inform some of the uh, the creeping horror, like Grant says, things that should not be. Um, but that and that's the the other thing with the, the distinct factions that they have a, a feel a feel, don't they? Like there are the demonic alien types who just feel like they don't don't belong of this earth but then there's the more mundane more mundane factions or enemies that we come against like the Knights Templar if we've been branders of witches or magic users. I suppose that's the interest in terms of, in terms of because when, when I'm world building I'm not thinking about who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, I'm just creating factions and uh, enemies and personalities and you know, it's up to you guys to decide who you're going to join, or who who you're going to fight, or who you're going to piss off, or who you're going to annoy. Or who usually, you're going to whoever, whoever, usually it's whoever we speak, speak to first <laughs> that tries to tries to persuade us that they're, that they're the good guys. We kind of believe them, <laughs> and even when they've shown not to be the good guys in the past, <laughs> we can oh, yeah, you, you, oh, do it. But you, but the, but the other group have, have allied themselves with the Gel Ying and made, made friends with the Gel Ying. <laughs> <laughs> to the point where it brought them it brought them fresh meat as a. As they didn't realise that though, did they? They didn't realise they made friends with the Gel Ying. <laughs> In the very same encounter, which the demonic beast brought them fresh meat and thanks for their friendship, they decided to kill its pet and uh, invoke its. <laughs> <laughs> but you guys are sort of more rational oh, group in comparison, and the other group is sort of more sort of uh, psychedelic. I think. Previous ways. Psychopathic, I think. Psychopathic, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Out of curiosity, Matt, how much of it do you make up on the spot? How how much when we play the average game? How much of it do you actually just make up on the spot, and that suddenly becomes canon? Oh, what in terms of. Uh, of background and history like, and characters uh, and everything. Oh, quite, quite, quite a lot of it, probably. Yeah, quite a lot yeah. of it. Sort of, uh, yeah. I mean, can you give us an example where some things become oh. kind of permanent in canon? Uh, I'm just trying to think. I mean, it'll be mostly things like random characters because you go down a different. Uh, what, what was the last game we played? What was the last game? I can't remember. Uh, the Assault on uh, Emperim, wasn't it? 
Yeah, sort of um, Emperor, yeah. No, everything everything there was pretty contained, so there wasn't anything that 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 changed there. But things like when you're doing your politicking and like those I think there was a when you were going around the court and that sort of thing in the in the king's court and you were talking to different characters and what have you. Um so there'll be things like there that you have to invent sort of sort of you, you know, characters on the off the top of your head and that sort of thing. Yeah, so you needed you needed a lord to uh, you know uh, an emissary from another country, and so you kind of made up a made up a an ambassador on the spot. Uh, yeah. You needed and sort of I guess imagine yeah. just how French and snooty he would have to be. Yeah, so I suppose actually in answer in answer to you, was it to Cole's question is that the big picture stuff that's done. But it's like detailed stuff that you can't think about when you're inventing the game when you're creating a world. You know, the name of the king's squire, or you know, or what exactly what his personality is, or some some minor noble. That stuff you can't mm. plan in advance, and you just got to make it up. So you've never made an entire country, for example, <laughs> just uh, off the top of your head. No, I don't think so. I don't, I, no, not I, even Pic Daliard. <laughs> Oh, Pictaliard, yeah. So I've got Pictaliard. I've got a map. I've got I've got factions. I've got things mm. like you know the king, the politics, and the things that as players you shouldn't know. But there'll be if you ever went to Pictaliard, I would flesh out even more, and there'll be uh, and as you play it, I, I would I would maybe change some things that I thought I wanted. I might I might even change things that perhaps I thought I wanted into something else. Yeah. Because it's a world for play. It's not. I don't want it to be a fixed world that I've invented. Yeah. And I'm going to force upon you. It's got to work as as a as a world to to game in, yeah. to play in. Well, that sounds like yeah. you have mapped out quite a lot, even though it's only really sketchy. But you have got an idea of what a Pictaliarden is like, even though as players, none of us have ever invested it, investigated it, and don't think the other group have ever come in contact with that. Yeah, that, that, either, that's they? right. I'm not going to waste my time. In, Going in, you know, sometimes yeah. I'll be. If I go out to a pub for a drink and by myself, I'm writing. I'll do these things. I'll go off in random directions. that has got nothing to do with things that you're questing on. But most of the time, when I'm writing quest, I'm writing world world building. It's because it's a week before you guys are coming over, and I need mm -hmm. to write something quick. So I'll focus yeah. on what I know you're the area of the world you're going to. Yeah. Plus, so for, what we've been what we've been emailing and about as we get more excited and we think more yeah. about it, some of these things again, uh, these things come into existence as we think about them. Yeah. yeah so we need to get Kareem and uh, uh, <laughs> Town and the, and the Cappadocia and the history behind that and its formation, all the all the rumours and all the that you could possibly find out and the history of, of the area and that sort of thing. Yeah, because we're now... We think about Pigdaliada, but, but that seed was obviously in your head as a future possible location. Oh, the, um, oh what, Cappadocia? Sorry, you talk, he's talking about the... Oh, right, okay. Sorry, we talking there about yeah. um, Cappadocia yeah. is like the, so, the discussion oh, we had, like, I remember the discussion we had about the real uh, Cappadocia sort of on the outskirts yeah, yes, of yeah, that's Turkey right, yeah. like yeah, about six go. years so, ago. So, yeah, so you, I think you said to me, wouldn't it be cool if the, the main base of um, what's-his-face, Fentmauer, was, was, a, was a Cappadocia? It's well, very well defended underground sort of series of tunnels that was mm. very hard to assault. That I thought it would be very cool to assault. I might have I might have done myself in here. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, but we'll find, we'll find a way in. <laughs> Yeah, you find a way. You find a way. Hang so, on. 
it's uh, yeah, so that's the inspiration for it, and that came from a player. I was going to um, put the focus on you for a bit, Joe, because did you not create um, quite a lot, quite a big bit in the world when you invented a whole country for your character, or was that already there? Because uh, uh, your your two characters in the campaign there's Vincent Valentino uh, to start with, and then uh, Jago Varsi, uh, two both from uh, uh, Cilia. Uh, well, Jago is from Cilia. Vincent Valentino wasn't from Cilia, but he had a Cilian uncle. Stuff, okay. Which right. I just threw out there. That was that was like my first character. I think I only played him for one session or maybe two yeah. sessions, and that yeah. was joining a different game. Um, but he was he was Tanabian, I think, which okay. is where Dan's character is from, probably where Jurgen's oh, from. So that was from a bit that was fleshed out. But then, yeah, when I went to play play Jago and created my new character, um, my swashbuckler, I just had the idea of him coming from this island nation. I think the kind of yeah, you know, classical swashbuckler, dazzling rapier style didn't really um, make sense from the the countries on the mainland. From the it wasn't in the keeping with the Dragonian style stuff. So that's why I kind of I, you know asked Mike for to come up with the his own homeland, his own country, which was you know a island nation off the coast and they're kind of loosely based on. Like Spain and Italy kind of merged into one in like you mm-hmm. know, Renaissance era. Yes. Of, and so, did you have sort of a bit of a back and forth uh, about this? Because wouldn't it be these be conversation? Maybe I wasn't party to, or recall. Um, I think so. I can't exactly remember, Matt. What did we? <laughs> Can you remember how it went, Matt? What we said. Um, yeah, no, Joe went away, um, came back the next day what, after creating his character and, creating, and had written out this whole this sort of synopsis of this, this island people and it fit, fitted in well, yeah, fitted in very well, so I was happy to accept it. Why not? And uh, a, a, lot of, a lot of the background that Joe made up, things like the fate witches, the blind sort of uh, matriarchs, um, the, the sort of fighting style, uh, it's, it's sort of isolation from the rest of the world except for a few colonies from Dragos which trying to convert them to the to, to their religion. It's, it's sort of fitted into the canon, there's been some of the quests and the, and, and the adventures since. So it's, yeah, so it's helped. It's helped create, create the game and create the, create the quest. Okay. And the other end of things are where uh, Colin had some suge- a suggestion of a setting. I'm going to be controversial here. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Let's create the. Let's create. Hang on, before Cole starts. Yeah, let's create the context first. So we'll play it. We'll play the game. Play the game, and I knew it was going to be all combat. So we decided, okay, let's do some backstory so we so that at points throughout the game we can intersperse sort of like two weeks, you know, flashback two weeks earlier, something narrative. Something to do with to do with your characters and, and uh, yeah. everybody wrote a little. What bit happened what on the journey up there? To do. So Joe, what did you want? Yeah, uh, and Grant wanted. What did you want for your character, uh, Grant? Was it? Uh, 
discussion with uh, conversation my, with your uh, mother, my character's mother, yeah. who's head of the house, and so that was kind of yeah. political, uh, sort of the big picture sort of discussion about where the house is going and where my part, where my part, where my role was, and the role of yeah. the party. All, <laughs> all pretty low key narrative role play sort of elements. And Cole writes in, I find a magical monastery full of mages who teach me to become level 20 plasma mage of doom, and I get a staff of the magi. <laughs> okay, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me defend Colin, <laughs> you have a right to reply. Yeah. I, <laughs> okay, before I start, I do realise that uh, I was pushing my luck, but... Uh, in my defence, <laughs> the whole aim of my character for the past <laughs> however many years, 15 years is it, has been to find out about uh, how plasma works and how to use his magic in a more effective way because basically it's really difficult to use. So I kind of, it was taking any to any uh, chance to try and find out a bit more about it. And I actually, I expected you more to, um, like, say... Well, I don't know, because I, I didn't say all the Magi stuff. Basically, the, it ended with um, me meeting somebody outside a monastery. So you could have then said, like, uh, the whole place blows up, or, you know, no, Gillian descend on the place and kill them all. And, yeah, but they could have all been killed, like, two seconds later by something. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what's yeah, the... Possibly. Anyway, you, t you, tell us to, you tell us to do what we want to do. That's what I wanted to do. I'm not make that mistake again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in the end, uh, you did. There was also a connection to your character's long lost older brother, who was also an yes. age, um, and that was left in. Uh, Colin couldn't remember it afterwards. No, because he, he was drinking, yeah. he was drinking the port. He was drinking the battle port. Forgot all about that connection scene. And, and I guess you guys were all totally sober. Yeah. Well, we remembered it. Totally. Boberz is in here. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was a good yeah. scene. Yeah, yeah, there, there was, was, there was yeah, still a scene where there was everything. You forgot it. <laughs> yeah, I did have quite a lot of poor that night. There is an abbey. Um, there might you might not find the magical super friends there, but there was an abbey. Uh, so you know, still there's a, there was a give and take there, and still sort of a collaborative Trodden, approach to Trodden it. Trodden Fort. That was the scene, was it not? That that. So I think Carl was speaking to his mother, who uh, ate the fact that her son is involved in in magic, and mm -hmm. the mother has some sympathies towards her son still, and revealed the information that. Uh, is it Alistair's older brother is was communicating with, but they'd been ignoring his letters. And it'd been many years ago since he communicated. Yeah. Link, there's a link there. There might be something there called something in something in Trottenfort. Magical, maybe. Not promising. Three, three mages and a staff of magi. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yes, I knew it was true. I knew it was true. It wasn't a dream. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, so I, think, I think successful world building for a game has to involve the players as much as just the GM enforcing his world on people and telling the story that he wants to tell. Because if, if a campaign's going to last 15 years longer, it's got to be a story told by everybody. It can't just be a story told by one person. Otherwise, hmm. it just fizzles out after three or four games. Right. Mm -hmm. So how that's an interesting point. Like, how do you strike that balance then? If you're designing, if you're designing a game, designing a role-playing game, because you see loads. You can't. Of these, you can't. You can't. 
You can't, so don't bother. You play, with, <laughs> you, you don't bother. It's an impossible task. You play with friends. You play with people that you know. You play with people that you're going to see anyway. Uh, you know, it's beyond it. You know, it goes beyond the game. But what just what we're saying in terms of background, you just shouldn't include any background in your game then, and just let every group build it from the. No, that's fine. But you, can, but you can put as much background into your game as you like. It doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that um, everyone who plays your game is going to have a 15-year campaign. Far from it. Yeah, I think you part of the point you're making there is you can't force people down certain paths as well. So you can design background, but uh, don't expect them to actually use it. Possibly. Yeah, exactly. Is yeah. that true? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's half the time when you get a campaign that you're. It's so obvious what you're supposed to do. So it's the it's the guy in the alleyway with the big massive exclamation mark above his head. Go and see him, <laughs> and he'll tell you what to do. And yeah, <laughs> no, actually, won't bother with that. We'll go into the pub instead. <laughs> Because I know Sorry, your podcast is about about building desi design systems and what have you. And I, don't, I don't think you can create a perfect world to game in. Uh, I don't think I, I think there's more to it than than that. Just creating background and what have you. It's about the players themselves and the GM and the, just like the group wanting to to play every week or every or. Well, once a year, every year. Sure. <laughs> if, we could, yeah. if, we, if we could even manage that nowadays, God. Yeah, there, there are social social dynamics and uh, group factors yes. that you, you can't control with design. But it's like whether there's things that would move the design more towards that perfect game and then things that might move it further away. And in terms of, of world building, um, what struck me is when you say that you kind of you sketch out like a lot of the, the background will have like vague ideas for what's going on in lots of different places, but then you only bother to develop it when that becomes a part a point of interest to the players, you know, that's going to come up in actual play. Yeah, I think that's a, so, that's something that's a practical thing really, that you you know, I only just manage to do it once or twice a year. I mean, I know there are a lot of people listening who play traditional role playing games in GM every week every two weeks and I'd, I'd, I wouldn't be able to keep up with that and put detail into the game to make it sandbox you'd you'd have to railroad and take the players down where it wants to go so I think time is a factor I suppose I think our campaign works because we play so yeah. frequently actually mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of preparation goes into and sort of discussion goes into each individual um, session. Yeah, I know we kind of discount the, the fact that every time we meet up, we spend about two or three hours talking about it, don't we? So <laughs> there's all this kind of extra point. meta role playing. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. You can't put that in a robot. No. Yeah, are there rules that could support it though? in terms of some sort of system, or just method, I suppose. That's I think part, part of it's yeah. art. Part, part of it's creating the environment. And yeah, Matt, you've done that since you created that, like when you were a teenager, didn't you, a lot of it? And so yeah, it, it embroils you so much more, so you're encouraged to talk about it in the times in between. And There's definitely got to be a part of it that's just art. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Yeah, cheers. Good Thank to talk you. to you both. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Thank you. See you later. See you later, man. And uh, can't wait till can't wait Cheers. till the next session. <laughs> right. Bye, guys.
that was episode 19 of the Dicing with Design podcast. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, before I go, uh, we did talk about putting pictures of the creatures uh, Matt invented for the setting. Uh, you can see the head of a Gelying on the post for this episode on DicingWithDesign.com and I'll try and get my hands on some more pictures to put up in a later post. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions or comments about the points raised in this episode or anything you'd like to hear us discuss in the future. You can now keep in touch with the show in whatever way you want, um, as well as the website, DiceWithDesign.com. We have a Facebook page and a Google Plus page where you can just search for Dice with Design there. And on Twitter, at DWD Podcast, as well as our email address, podcast at DiceWithDesign.com. If you want to contact us individually, the best way to do that is through Twitter. Colin is at GamerColin. I'm at GrantSensei. And you can follow Joe and Prince of Darkness Games, of course. He is Joe J. Prince on Twitter. It would help us out if you could let others find out about our little podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. Our music comes from Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, who releases his work under a Creative Commons license. Until next time, from all of us at Dyson with Design, bye bye. <laughs>